You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Hello. God, considerably more unruly than at the beginning when everyone's very, very well behaved. So without further ado, welcome to the final day of Names Not Numbers 2010. I'm delighted to introduce a polemicist... Somebody whose facial expressions during everybody else's session is the subject of many marvellous photographs. With no disrespect to Philip Blonde, David's expressions during his presentation yesterday were particularly memorable. Uh, but that may just be a voodoo conspiracy about which David has written a lot. David Aronovich. Um, thought for the day on Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, actually, I just sort of, it's, it's, I was doing a lot of thinking this morning because I was getting up early, but all the thoughts were, were, were awful. Um, <laughs> but insofar as they cohered, the first thought I had was, it's Sunday, and I'm doing a thought for the day on Sunday morning, so I thought of Alan de Botton's speech and his suggestion that if we organised our lives as well as he'd organised his, <laughs> then we wouldn't then we wouldn't need to work on the seventh day. So I thought about that as I prepared to make this speech on a, on, on a Sunday. And it coincided, more or less, with another situation which I had to think about, which was I haven't really got enough room in my suitcase for everything that I've picked up while I'm here. <laughs> so I couldn't get my suitcase closed this morning. And when I'd done all the kind of, you know, shoving things in here and shoving things in there and the indispensable things and so on, it came down to this. It came down to that cake we were all given. <laughs> on, the, on the one hand. And the Alan de Botton book that they given us on the other. <laughs> Suitcase packed, everything there. Tiny bit of room. Cake, <laughs> book. And I thought, and I, and I want us to think, and I think we're being, but I think I want to think seriously. In this life of ours, when we have this choice between the cake and the book, how are we going to go? And I thought about Alain, still so young, so eloquent, so charming, so handsome, so prolific and I packed the cake. <laughs> so, the next inhabitant of Dogangoch, um, in addition to the Clive Kustler novels, will also find something slightly more elevated. Anyway, so the next thing I thought was, well, OK, what, given that we've seen a variety of ways of speaking from this platform, which of the ways of speaking that people have had should I, should I adopt? Should I go for the Niall Ferguson way, which I would essentially say is essentially like the cast from Glee, wasn't it? <laughs> a sort of... Where you suddenly get out and belt out an improbably perfect number, complete with orchestration... And so on. 
and yet somehow or other this was supposed to fit in, you know, this is how you are kind of normally um, and, and every day. And I decided, actually, I probably wasn't up to that. And uh, uh, I thought that the Claire Fox way, which is to come here with an ominous sheaf of handwritten notes <laughs> and an I've started, so I finish, I'll finish mentality. All done, it has to be said, with a sort of a, a, incredible amount of wit and self-deprecation and so on, enjoyable. And then I thought, I just, I'm not self-deprecating enough for that. <laughs> um, or the Yasmin Allen Bry Brown way, which of course is, would be the best way of all. I mean, obviously I haven't got the clothes for it. And then I thought, or, or, the, or the sheer incredible bloody emotional courage to do it. And also, I just wasn't clear how she would have coped with my greatest, artistically, with my greatest childhood trauma of a similar sort, which was the day at the age of eight that I developed chronic diarrhoea in the middle of the class. <laughs> And Yasmin, you may want to come up later and show us how you would have acted out that particular scene. <laughs> um, as for clothes, then, in that case, to play that any colour as long as it's brown. Um, so what I've done is I've opted here, as you can see, for the Charlie Leadbeater way, which is I've got my Macintosh in front of me, which says that, if nothing else, at least it tells you about me that I could tweet right now if I bloody well wanted to. <laughs> Um, so then the question was, what should be the character of this morning thought? Um, and I thought about the thought for the day regulars on the radio. Um, would I do a Rabbi Lionel Blue avuncular homilectic? Um, you, me and God, warm things I've learned, etc. You know, a, a, a funny thought before you die, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. I'm sorry. Good morning, all of you. Or would I go for, for those of you who've got it, the kind of Giles Fraser of Putney spiritual right honorary, God, consumerism and community action, where you cross Christian piety with left-wing self-righteousness to create something that you would actually cross the M25 on a pogo stick to avoid. <laughs> Um, or Anne Atkins spit hanky admonitory style you know what a shower some people and probably you are um, and you'll be glad to hear that I've opted for Anne Atkins I mean because I think there's been far too much bonhomie uh, uh, knocking around and far too much sort of anyway so if it's going to be Anne Atkins, then I thought uh, what I would do, I'd do a variant on my usual thought, which you will usually see in my column. It's the sort of disguised thing, well, not so very well disguised thought in all of them, which is uh, essentially this question, why don't you stop bloody moaning? Um, essentially, most of my columns come down to this proposition. <laughs> stop bloody moaning, got nothing to moan. Anyway, um, we have, um, like everybody else, we do a, a, a fair bit of moaning. I mean, I, I, I kind of characterise it as somewhere, so, someone somewhere, you believe, is inexorably drawing together the medical record of your treatment for a minor STD, the occasions in which you've been spotted by CCTV dropping into shops to buy strange presents, 
the oyster-recorded tube visits you've made to odd outlying suburbs, the driver-identified 60-mile-per-hour dash along the 40-mile-per-hour road at an odd time of the evening, the purchases of wine and chocolates at Waitrose. Now, it's either you're afraid of the organs of the state doing it for entirely inexplicable and capricious reasons of your own, or more likely, behind all this, is a fear of your wife or husband discovering what you've been doing. I remember very well when my wife's aunt uh, sent me one of those round-robin petitions against road pricing, and her complaint about road pricing ostensibly was that the state would know wherever you were driving. But knowing the swinging habits of that particular part of Wiltshire... (laughs) I kind of wondered, really, whether that was, behind, uh, 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 was actually what she was worried about. And, in fact, actually, most middle-class concerns about privacy end up being about one thing, and that's parking. Um, <laughs> honestly, it's true. You scratch it, and the example that everybody will suddenly come up with you is that you've been identified by CCTV camera parking one inch beyond the line and so on. And this is the sort of invasion of... Beyond this, you know, a, a little bit away along from this moment and the, and the traffic warden, the picture coming, lies Hitlerism, the gulag, uh, uh, and so on, and you're all going to be taken off. But I was struck very much by the discussions that we were having, which I thought were very good, about unintended consequences. Um, This is a large amount of, really, I think, the subterranean texts of what we discuss at uh, occasions like this. Things have not worked out quite the way we expect. We come together... I can't remember that great statistic about how if you ask pundits to forecast the political future, it is actually slightly less reliable than simply tossing a coin. Actually, not slightly, actually markedly less reliable than tossing a coin. In other words, the expertise that we place into the business actually obscures obscures the likely truth. We don't know. Uh, what is going to happen. We like to pretend that we do. We've heard, we hear a range of predictions about what's going to happen. The thing that we find difficult is coping with the notion that actually we don't know where it's going to go. Um, uh, so thinking about this issue of privacy and trust, the issue of privacy and trust that we've been talking about a lot, um, we talk as though we'd really rather not anybody in a shop knew whether we preferred melons to plums, for instance. And yet, we have an absolute notion of our right, we, an unquestioned right, to know what John Terry did with Shalimar Brimble. That is a real person's name. And incidentally, if somebody can explain to me what I'm... Because I'm, I'm naive, I should know. What is a glamour model? Uh, I know what glamour is, and I know what a model is, but when you stick them together, what is actually... I mean, does that, I mean, does that literally mean no clothes? Is that what it means? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, so it's, a, it's actually just a straightforward euphemism. Okay. Um, In that case, it's quite interesting. We invade other people's privacy in a kind of huge way, and then we use euphemisms to describe what it is that they do. Uh, How absolutely extraordinary. We can talk about their acts of oral sex, but we're not actually quite able to discuss what their jobs are. Um, (laughs) It's a kind of peculiar thing. Maybe it's just British. Maybe in Italy they would have no problem with this whatsoever. Uh, there is an unquestioning assumption that we absolutely have the right to know what it is that Tiger Woods did. Uh, we don't feel embarrassed about knowing this in any way. We don't sit around sort of at a table when somebody says, oh, Tiger Woods has done such and such, and so you say, well, look, I, you know, I really don't think I have the right to know this, really, and, uh, and so on. We might, if we're particularly high-minded, uh, and Giles Fraserish, say that we don't really would rather we weren't told. Um, 
I still don't quite understand, incidentally, with Tiger Woods where the car came into it and so on. Um, but anyway. Uh, but... Okay. <laughs> there's always... Yes, there's always a, a little voice from the front. I'll explain. Um, rather ominously, this is from an American. I don't know where you were on the day, Sarah. Um, <laughs> But I suspect that if you really can explain, then I could be out to making quite a lot of money out of this. Um, but the reason why I raised it, I raised it in the context of the MP's, uh, MPs' expenses. The other thing that wasn't really questioned was whether or not people had the right to know the extraordinary levels of detail which were shown by the Telegraph and released. I mean, all the anger was unleashed upon MPs, and three may be uh, 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 convicted of, uh, may be charged with and convicted of fraud. They may not be. Um, but nevertheless, one of the things that was interesting about people's responses to it, and uh, journalists found this interesting, was that the concentration was never on the issues where people had made most money, but was on the minutiae of people's lives. It was on who'd spent what on bog paper and so on. And once you get beyond, got beyond the kind of notions of moats and, uh, uh, and dovecots and birdhouses and so on, it was really upon the absolute small change detail of these people's lives. What we had effectively done was we had entirely um, uh, done away with the concept of members of Parliament's private lives. We just destroyed it. Absolutely destroyed it. Um, now, there was a part of, you know, I, I, the, the, there are kind of excuses that we use for ourselves to kind of separate ourselves off from people like this from the purposes of, 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 of discussing privacy. Um, the first one is, yes, but I don't spend public money. Um, they spend public money, therefore we should know how much they spend on loo paper. Um, no, but many of us spend lots of money made from the public in order to influence the public. Many powerful people in society do that. Uh, then another one is, oh yes, but I wasn't elected to run the country. No, but you run quite a lot of it without having once shoved your brass neck above the electoral parapet. Uh, the point I'm making, it's not anti-you, it's not that at all. Um, I thought Charlie very slightly let people off the hook yesterday for after my excellent question about, uh, about members of political parties by saying who was involved in some form of other political activity. I mean, he was both right, but he was also letting you off slightly softly. Uh, uh, and it's not because it's a matter of blame or anything like that, because it's a matter of, a, of, a, of what I've increasingly realised is not just a false distinction that we're making about the nature of power and consequently about the nature of accountability and trust. In other words, we scream incredibly that our rulers don't trust us, yet it doesn't occur to us these days for five seconds to trust them. In other words, to repose in them anything like the same degree of confidence that we would demand as of right for ourselves, which is problematic, but it's additionally problematic because this is what is happening as a consequence. We all know that in any, in any society, including democratic society, there is a significant level of power invested in so-called private individuals. In other words, what we mean by that is they, they utilise their power unelected. Nobody, they don't stand for election. Nobody votes for them. They're not accountable in any way to the public in an electoral sense, and yet they wield significant power. They do it on the bench. They do it as newspaper magnets. They do it as industrialists. They do it, quite possibly, as professionals in their own particular, in their own particular jobs, in their own particular fields. They increasingly do it as members of 
or heads of quangos, which are the bodies which we have effectively constructed partially because we don't trust our politicians or as checks upon the politicians. And we have increasingly done since 1945. And it's something that I agree very much with Claire Fox about, essentially, which is that we haven't noticed, in a sense, the depoliticisation of power, or rather, more to the point, we've actually demanded it in some kind of a funny way. But we now have this bifurcation. What we say is, if you are elected, if you're David Davis and you stand for Parliament, I should know everything about you. I have the right to know everything about you. But if you're Rupert Murdoch, my boss, you have no right to know anything about him whatsoever, except insofar as somebody could maybe just about discover it. And then it's likely to be suppressed by other newspaper editors or something like that. In other words, we're not going to find out about it. Now, I put the suggestion to you, and here's my thought for the day, that what we're doing is we are creating an immense bias in favour of the desire to wield unelected, unaccountable private power at the expense of drawing people into the exercise of accountable public power. That's my thought for the day, and on that basis I leave you um, uh, uh, to enjoy the rest of the morning and the view and everything else. Thank you very much indeed.